in, in this moment here, it was more of a, a wild and natural situation that I, I felt I did feel quite comfortable with. I wouldn't have judged anyone for for participating in in that kind of activity. I just I had always felt that I couldn't do that because my body wasn't set up to process that kind of food. Um, but in fact, it was. You know, folks, there's a few stories uh, that that I never forget, and one of those stories is from Benjamin Jordan from this episode when he talks about having to survive on mountaintops for a week at a time and what he had to do to make that happen because his sport of choice, vol bivouac paragliding, is basically when you are backpacking, imagine, or bikepacking, but your mode of transportation is a paraglider not a backpack and not your own two feet. You, I mean, sometimes your own two feet because you have to walk up to a cliff or up to a mountaintop, jump off with your paraglider and fly as far as you can to the next spot and then do it all over again while being safe through the weather. Uh, this is a first. No one has ever done this before That uh, before Benjamin did it, which was uh, the, the length of the Canadian Rockies, 1,200 kilometers, flying over some of the most spectacular scenery on planet Earth and being the first one to do it. This was an absolute episode conversation adventure for the ages, so I hope you enjoy. It might not be the most relatable episode, but holy cow, it's one of the most inspiring I've ever heard, so enjoy, and if you like Ben's story, he makes a film for every adventure that he does, and he's done a lot of other things. In fact, we had him on another episode last year talking about his path flying, uh, vol bivouacking, the path of the monarch butterfly from Mexico to Canada when uh, they hatch down in that forest in the mountains of Mexico and then fly uh, in one fell swoop up to Canada or up to Northern America back to where, they, where they're from. So it's, it's a pretty cool story, and there's films for all those. Definitely check it out. All that's in the show notes. And the, the, this adventure specifically is called The Endless Chain. Go to theendlesschain.com to learn more. And yeah, enjoy the episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. Uh, today we have in in a really cool story, and I'm really excited to get into the details um, because I don't I don't know the answers to any of the questions I'm going to ask. And uh, this is a guy who is doing things really different. Is in, in the paragliding world, he's doing things that have never been done, really challenging things, uh, many call impossible. And uh, recently, among tons of other trips, he recently flew a paraglider 1,200 kilometers along the southern portion of the Canadian Rockies, something that's never been done before, and that is just freaking awesome. And his name is Benjamin Jordan. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's yeah, awesome. man. I don't even know where to start, but you you flew from the American border, pretty much, of the Canadian Rockies all the way, all the way up to Prince George, British Columbia. Totally. Yeah. It was, uh, something that I just felt really, really passionate about. Um, I started in Montana, uh, on foot, uh, you're not allowed right. to fly across the border. 
and I walked across the border and, you know, got my stamp and uh, hiked up the first hill I could find, which was about a kilometer north of the border, up um, a cut block. And I, uh, over 52 insane days, made my way all the way to Prince George, which is the capital of northern British Columbia. So I basically flew the rocky spine crossing the divide several times, uh, going across Banff National Park, which you're not allowed to land in, and Jasper National Park, which is the first time anyone's ever flown across Jasper, to get all the way there. And I did it without using any fossil fuels, uh, just by using Mother Nature and the gifts that she brings in terms of wind and thermics, uh, you know, which we can get into. Wow. Now that is, (laughs) what an adventure, man. I mean, I I might make a lot of people mad in saying this, but Dude, the, the Canadian Rockies are my favorite mountain range in the entire world. We are, we're based in Colorado, and I tell you what, they're better than anything in the States to me as far as <laughs> epicness and beauty and just dra- dramatic. They're the most beautiful mountains. And so to fly over them, I can't even imagine how gorgeous that was. Ah, it's like every, every, every minute, it's like someone has not just turned the page, they've like started a whole new book. You know, uh, you just enter a whole new valley system and it's just like, okay, what's going to happen now? What do I have to contend with? If I have to make an emergency landing, where am I going to land? If, you know, where, where the thermal is going to be, what, you know, what's going on? How am I going to cross this? What's the valley wind doing? What's the, the laminar wind doing? What's going on here? You know, can I get out of here alive? And, uh, and so every, you know, every five or 10 minutes, you're dealing with that exact same set of questions over the course of sometimes five, six hours you know, to, to complete a flight. And then at the end of that whole thing, you got to think about, well, where am I actually going to land? Cause you got to land at right. some point. And ideally you're landing on top of a mountain, but that can be sketchy at best. So, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm trying not to go on tangents here, but, uh, there's a lot of things I, I'd love to, to share with you. You know, we've talked, we actually had a paraglider on recently who climbs up volcanoes and then flies off, but right it's on. very like, uh, you know, he has a big area to fly down. He's not super, um, maybe I, I, let's say precise in where he needs to land. Cause he flies down to these meadows at the bottom of the volcanoes and it's huge open areas. And then he might have a few hour walk to his car if he didn't, you know, time it right or whatever. But you don't really have that luxury when you're trying to land on mountain peaks, you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, this is uh, this is called vol bivouac paragliding. Um, they don't even have a word for it in English. It, that's how rare this uh, sport is. That's how fringe it is. It's a French word that means fly camp, literally, vol bivouac. And um, Holy basically the idea is, uh, in its purest sense, to carry everything that you need uh, on your back, uh, whether that's your paraglider or your food, or your, your tent, whatever you want to bring, whatever luxuries you want, uh, whatever necessities you have and to, uh, basically fly as much as possible, um, and walk as little as possible. Um, and just use mother nature's wind and thermic lift to be able to carry you from one point to the next. Sometimes you're flying as few as 13, you know, kilometers. Sometimes you're flying as many as 140 kilometers in a single flight. And, uh, yeah, ideally landing on a mountain that you can camp on, find water on, and then be able to launch from the following day. Now, the catch is that sometimes you can't fly the following day because this is paragliding. And so you have to do what they call para-waiting. But most people para-wait. <laughs> most people para-wait for a few hours, you know, and if it's not good, they just, you know, hop in their car and they, they, they go home and they watch Netflix. If you 
are on a mountaintop and you landed there, you may not even be able to hike off of that mountain if you wanted to. Um, you may be on a mountaintop that no one's actually stepped on before, for, you know, um, and, you know, just to set the record straight, I'm a paraglider. I like hiking. I'm not a mountaineer. So when it comes to certain types of terrain, I have no business there. So I'll often be in a situation where I've landed on a mountain and I can't actually get off that mountain without flying. But that could take me up to a week if, you know, a storm is coming through or certain, you know, gust fronts are coming through. And so I'll be stuck there. And, you know, usually up to 50 kilometers, 60 kilometers away from even a gas station as far as being able to replenish my food. So it gets pretty hairy. And um, I like your definition of adventure that you used on, on your last podcast anyway, uh, because that's exactly what it is. It's constantly thr thrusting myself into the most precarious unknown situations, but at the same time, like never feeling more alive. Dude, I, I can't even, I honestly can't even imagine the, the feeling of being stuck on a peak and then just you have your wing out and just take off like a bird. I can't imagine how awesome that would feel. Never done it. I, it sounds especially there in Banff or near Banff. Um, yeah. Imagine just kind of flying around, taking your, your pick of like four mountains that you think, trying to identify which one would be the safest to land on. So things I'm considering are, okay, what's the wind doing in that area? Is that going to be, you know, hazardous? Is it going to create turbulence? Because if you have turbulence, uh, and you're low to the ground, that's the most dangerous thing that can happen in paragliding because your wing can deflate and you can drop and then you can sustain serious injury. So that's the big thing that you have to worry about is turbulence. And um, then you want to look at, well, if I do have a bit of a rough landing, maybe I want to pick a snow patch that I can just kind of plow into in a worst case scenario. Um, so then you're looking at things like that. And then all of a sudden you're down there, you're in the snow patch, you're, you're folding up your glider and you're like, all right, I got to, you know, fortunately, if there's snow, then that's your solution for water. But sometimes you, you didn't land on snow and sometimes you have to, you know, walk around and sort of discover this new planet, if you will, and figure out, well, is there water here? You know, uh, can I walk down if I need to? Uh, you know, what else is there here? Where's a good spot to camp? And then at the end of all that is where can I relaunch from? You can't just launch from anywhere. You have to launch into wind uh, or into a breeze. So sometimes the best place to launch from, maybe there's a little meadowy side of the mountain, you can't launch from there because there's always, you know, cycles coming down that mountain because of it's on the lee side, you know, where the wind is dropping over the back. So you have to launch from, you know, maybe you have to hike up even higher, closer to the summit and find like a snow cap where you can spread your lines out without getting them caught on all the rocks. And they get caught on the rocks and they break. And that's a problem because they break literally as you're launching. And so uh, there's all these considerations. But I would I would liken it to landing on a new planet and kind of being there all alone and having to figure out what's going on here. How am I going to survive here over the next, you know, 12 hours or 36 hours or 72 hours or whatever it is. How long were you on peaks for? I was on peaks up to se uh, up to seven days. Oh, my gosh. And what do you do? I mean, was it, was it a moment that, that, uh, I mean, did you have food for that? I mean, what was that experience like that seven day portion? Yeah. So, I mean, it's like pretty, pretty nuts. Um, because, uh, let me just, um, give you a, a slight tangent here. Uh, go for it, man. Just make, make whatever this... you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. I want to, I feel like this will make it more relatable and it's a real, it answers a lot of questions. Uh, I think for people to think of why would this guy do this? So, 
Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in the city, um, didn't have access to a lot of adventure. You know, I, I, my mom, um, thank goodness she sent me to a camp for a couple weeks every, every summer. And then it's camp. Um, this one year I was 15 and they decided that the, an exercise would be that they would take us out, uh, without saying a word that we got up at like four in the morning and they put us into this little roped off section of forest and there we had some instructions you had to write a letter to yourself uh you had to not leave your roped off area there was no information about how long you were going to be there for so i'm in my little roped off area i've never been but by myself i grew up in the city again so there's constantly stimulation there's constantly people to observe you judge you whatever and here i am for the first time in my life at 15 years old without a soul around me and the craziest thing happened after about probably four or five hours, literally started going insane. I literally felt my mind slipping away. I was inventing new languages. I was like tripping. I couldn't eat any of my food because I literally thought I would be stuck there for days. And after 12 hours, they came and they got us and they let us come back. And I was so relieved. But the degree of relief that I felt literally felt like as if someone had taken a gun to my head and then removed it from my head. And it was that relief that struck me. And when I was struck so much by that relief, I thought to myself, wait a second, I was in a dire place, but I wasn't in a dire place. And so what's going on in my mind such that I can't be alone for, you know, 12 hours without completely losing my mind? What's going on? What is this fatal flaw that I have? I'm a human being. I ought to be able to contend with that kind of alone time. So since that time, I'm 38 now, I was 15 then, my whole life has been about trying to push that and heal that, whatever that is. And so it started with, you know, a one day bike trip, and then a three day bike trip, and then, you know, you know, traveling to New Zealand by myself. And I've sort of upped it and upped it and upped it. And now I am at the absolute peak of being able to just not lose my shit when I'm alone for an extended period. So now, skip to last summer and I'm sitting on some of these mountains for up to seven days waiting for storms or in our case we had a lot of smoke up here uh, to clear out so that I could fly on and what I do is I meditate I play ukulele I play I play music I fly and, and hike with a ukulele uh, to and I pass hours and hours every day with that and I explore I hike I try to map out the mountain I try to figure out you know where I am exactly try to learn about the new kinds of animals that live on the mountain, try to learn the language of the rodents. Every mountain seems to have a new kind of rodent, which is pretty cool. And yeah, just kind of learn about nature and get more in touch with nature and feel like I am not alone. I am one with the, a greater system and that it's okay. I can't even imagine. I mean, I've said that a few times. This is just a mind-blowing adventure to me. I've seen those mountains. I've been in them, and to just have the, the 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 I'm scared to death when I'm on the bike or hiking on some of those trails just because of the sheer you know not ex sometimes exposure, um, but you, you're, and then you're on a I mean you're on a mountain for a week in a storm with this flying fabric playing a ukulele meditating it sounds like a fairy tale it sounds like it's amazing that's <laughs> unbelievable well there's so many things that I, like like that i am picking up on that i want to touch on so one thing that i want to just throw out there because again i feel like it's relatable a lot of people hear about paragliding and they hear about what i'm doing and this and that and they think wow that's crazy i could never do that this and that that like isn't that so scary so 
one thing that I want to share is that like, okay, paragliding is scary for me when I'm sitting on the ground, like right now, thinking about paragliding. But the moment I start paragliding, I'm so consumed by what, by what it is that I'm doing that I have lost the capacity to fear. I literally have no more brain cycles left to generate the emotions of fear for what I'm doing. Mm. So I agree with you and I relate to you that it sounds crazy and it sounds like mystical and unbelievable, but in the moment of it, it is so believable and you have to put all of yourself into it. You have to be so present to it, which is I think what I like about it, that it doesn't actually feel scary. You're literally just doing. So there's that element and that I feel can apply to anything in life, which is awesome and has helped me a whole lot over the last 14, 15 years that I've been doing this. And then at the same time, I can also relate to being terrified of the idea of having to hike or cycle along this terrain because you are incredibly exposed. I'm not on that terrain. I'm over that terrain. And so my greatest concern is having to land in that terrain. I don't, you know, <laughs> like, that, makes, that actually makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Because when you're up there and things are peaceful, I, I guess it is this moment of just surreal peace, probably, until you have to reconnect with that land. Until you have to think about it. And, and so mm. the, the, the risk in paragliding is touching the ground because you don't know where your next invisible elevator is going to be or if it even exists. And so you fly into an area and you commit to a valley or to a region and you re you know that if you don't find that invisible elevator to get you back up, you know, above the, the, the ridge so you can fly into the next valley, then you might end up having to land there and you may not be able to find your way out. And that is probably my greatest fear is having to come in really hard, maybe get stuck in a tree, have to land on a scree slope, you know, even twisting an ankle in a situation like that, you're so remote, can be absolutely dev devastating. So I relate to you um, in terms of not wanting to end up in a hiking situation and, and being so exposed. Um, I feel like every time I, I cross a valley that I kind of got to get out of jail free card and that I realize that I'm pushing something. Um, but that I'm as long as I believe that I can do it, I feel like I can do it. So was there a moment where, you know, you said that's that's your biggest fear? Were, were there any moments <laughs> where you landed and thought, oh, crap, I'm I'm stuck? Uh, I. I got to say, like, I, I, I wish I could. I, I, OK, in the past, I have had the experience of landing in trees, for instance, not in these kinds of scenarios, in, in less precarious scenarios, fortunately, um, where I was able to get some help too. Um, uh, on these large trips, I've done two so far, this one that we're talking about, as well as two years earlier, I flew from Vancouver to Calgary. So I flew from west to east across all of the, the mountains of southern uh, Canada, southwestern Canada. Um, I have been very, very fortunate in terms of that I'm always finding, even if it gets precarious, I'm always finding that invisible elevator, that thermal, and getting back up and being able to make it back to a place that is, you know, relatively safe, somewhere that I can hike out of, somewhere that I can keep going. Um, worst case scenario, I'm usually landing on like a shoulder of a highway or something like that, and then I'm able to to make it. But in order to do that, you have to cross sometimes up here stretches of 50 kilometers, 60 kilometers, where there is no road, where there is no field, where there is no highway. And you can't land in that section. And if you do, it could go really bad. So I would say that there's lots of times when I get I start to get low and I start to get concerned and I get into a windy spot, a bad spot. 
And I can spend up to two hours just struggling in that area, just hoping that something about the meteorology will change. Maybe the sun will wrap around, it'll get a bit warmer, and there'll be a nice big thermal that will come up and not be so wind affected. Uh, when there's a lot of wind, it kind of blows the thermals out. Like um, I like to think of uh, birthday birthday candles on a cake that you can't they can't really form because they're just subject to so much wind. Um, Sometimes the wind will literally have to die down in order for me to be able to continue because the headwind is too strong and that means that my ground speed is too low to be able to make a crossing. So I'll have to just literally wait there until later in the day when the wind hopefully dies down so that I can make that crossing. But yeah, I mean, it's usually the first couple hours of a flight feel um, the most committed and then you kind of almost deplete your adrenals and you stop feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And you just you stop looking at where you might land and you, you just start looking at where you want to go. That, I mean, it sounds incredibly stressful, especially for 52 days of, of the emotional toll that it takes on you to be so careful and have to constantly think of all those factors all the time. Well, the biggest, the biggest thing I'd, I'd say the, 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 the most emotional thing is actually the food situation because I like food. Um, I think a lot of people like <laughs> A lot of people like food. I like to eat food. I am fortunate to, you know, be in a situation in a country where there's a lot of food for me. And uh, I'm not a small guy either. So, you know, I have to limit my food intake on these trips to what I can carry. And that looks like basically 2000 calories a day. That's 1500 from peanut butter and another 500 from instant noodles. And that's all I get. That's a lot of peanut butter and instant noodles. <laughs> it's a lot of peanut butter. And when you're hungry, you know, it, believe it or not, I mean, you, you've probably been in the situation many times like that. That is just like gourmet. Um, but, you know, when I get stressed out and when I'm bored or when I'm bored, those things make me want to eat. That's just <laughs> my reaction. And I can't eat you know, because I literally have a finite amount of food. So I have to just like ration my spoonfuls of peanut butter and, you know, realize that like I might be stuck there for a week. And if I go nuts on it today, then I'm actually going to end up in a, you know, a situation where I'm feeling really, really, really hungry. And those have been the most stressful for me. And uh, on this last trip, I actually got to a point where I had depleted my 12 days. That's how much I can carry of food. I had to learn to hunt. Um, I'm a vegetarian. Uh, I have been uh, for, I don't know, 20 years. And um, I had to learn how to set traps and skin and cook uh, basically marmots to stay alive um, or at least not to suffer in a, in a horrible way. I was on a mountain where I could not get down. I was stuck in the thickest smoke that I've ever, ever seen. It oh was a, a record, a record wildfire season here in British Columbia. Where, where was this that you were stuck? Um, I was stuck in, I was stuck in the North Rocky mountain trench, uh, just West of Mount Robson, which is the highest mountain in, oh in the community. Gosh. But it was a great view. Oh, aside from the snow. <laughs> no, it was, it wasn't a great view. I was, I was, I was probably only 10 K from Mount Robson and I couldn't see, I couldn't see a thing. I actually, I couldn't, I could, I couldn't see the valley floor. Um, I could, I couldn't even see the peak of the mountain that I was on the shoulder of. So my, my visibility was limited to about a hundred meters and I wouldn't even really call that visibility. It was just that you could see a vague outline in the middle of the day, no less. Um, 
you could pretty much look straight at the sun. It was like just a crimson red all throughout the day. It was cold, uh, despite the fact that it was August. And uh, that was how it was day in and day out. So um, the videos that I captured, the vlogs, uh, really show me becoming kind of emaciated and and um, and kind of blue. Um, Not to mention the, the breathing isn't ideal. Oh, that's the thing. And my, my, my voice, although I didn't realize it at the time, uh, it just, you know, it sounded like I was, you know, a lifetime chain smoker. Like it was, oh, gosh. it was brutal. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and, and I had to, to deal with the emotions of, uh, killing, uh, these animals and, and eating them. And, um, you know, and I guess even that became just kind of par for the course after a couple days, but, after being a vegetarian so long, did that affect you? Like upset you? Your 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 body? Your 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 stomach? I mean, that's a harsh transition. I, I... <laughs> Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I I kind of feel bad saying this, but like I actually I. I never felt so I never I never felt more alive. I, it may be because I went from feeling incredibly hungry to incredibly satisfied. Um, but I had a very positive experience um, eating those marmots and squirrels. And I I, I suppose I, I my rationale was that, you know, it was more for political reasons. Uh, my choice as a, as a teenager. And uh, in, in this moment here, it was more of a a wild and natural situation that I, I felt I did feel quite comfortable with. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have judged anyone for, for participating in, 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 um, in that kind of activity. I just, I had always felt that I couldn't do that because my body wasn't set up to process that kind of food. Um, but in fact it was, and it, it did, it did very well, uh, in that, in that circumstance. Wow. That is, <laughs> and how long were you stuck there on that? particular area uh on that on that one mountain um i didn't arrive there with a with, with a full food supply i probably only had about five days when i uh first got there uh but i was there for seven days okay okay so that that was the seven day stretch there was actually three seven day stretches <laughs> oh my god man come on yeah Jeez. and a bunch of like four four days too so yeah there was quite a few uh maybe even four but not but not Sorry, I shouldn't say seven uh, without uh, access to, to amenities. One of them was when I was stuck in the town of Jasper. Uh, so I had, you know, a library, my goodness, you know, and a grocery store there. Right. Uh, but yeah, that was the that was the time. That was the one time that I literally didn't leave that mountain. And I just had to stay there and wait there uh, for, for a week, which was definitely my maximum so far. How good did it feel to take off after that? Oh man, I was, you know, and it wasn't even a good day. It was still smoky. Um, but, uh, I got above that smoke layer. And so I, I felt, I don't know what, I don't even know how to, there's no word for that. Like you're literally floating on top of like a blanket of smoke now in this clear blue and you haven't seen blue for all that time. And, uh, and you're just kind of coasting along and, and unfortunately having to glide down into the smoke and then trying to get back up out of the smoke. But yeah, there's no words to describe that feeling. Like it, it literally felt like being released from prison. I, uh, I was so grateful and, you know, it wasn't even a long flight. It was the kind of flight that I would have typically been bummed, 
um, because of the smoke, the sun was not able to heat the earth. So those invisible elevators weren't activated properly. And uh, I only made it about 30 kilometers that day um, and had to bushwhack up another mountain. But I was so grateful just to have gotten to the valley floor. I even got to buy some, um, some more peanut butter at a gas station. So I was just like on cloud nine, you know, as you can imagine. What the heck? I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sure it was like when you, the 15 year old experience just times 50 of being released from that perimeter yeah. in the woods you had to sit. And I mean, it, it, <laughs> could you imagine describing to the people in the gas station what you just went through? <laughs> it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I show up there and, and they, um, and I don't, and I, and I, I would probably do the same if I were them first. So I'll say that, but they judge me, um, because I walk in there dirty as can be, you know, disheveled as can be. I haven't had a bath in 40 days at this point, right? you know, and they they look me up and down and they actually won't even talk to me. Usually they'll just keep having their mundane conversation about the weather and the smoke to whoever else is they've been talking to for the last two hours. And, um, that's my judgment, I guess. But, um, it's it's interesting because they'll you know when I do show up to the register and they'll say something to me so you you've been hiking you know because there's a lot of hiking happening in that area and I'll say well kind of I'm I'm paragliding from Montana to Prince George and they're like oh you know and don't even really bat an eyelash and I I I know I, I you know get my stuff and they're like so where are you gonna hike and I'm like well I'm I'm actually I'm paraglide. I'm doing this thing. And, and it's kind of like, um, I guess it's like that story of how the, uh, the native people, um, didn't see Mount, uh, Captain Cook's ships on, uh, you know, on the horizon because they didn't believe that something like that could happen. Right. And so they got caught off guard. So in this situation, the, the person is not really able to fathom what it is that's going on here, what's on my back, but they'll keep asking me questions like, that looks like a big tent. I'm like, well, actually, it's a aircraft, and I'm a pilot, and I'm doing this thing, you know, and it will be a record, and it's, you know, it's kind of a big deal. And I'm trying not to make a big deal about it, but, like, I'm so proud of it. Right. And, and uh, yeah, so it's it's an interesting experience that I have with people because they usually judge me as being this hobo in that moment. Um, and I mean, <laughs> I guess there's really not much more to say about it. Yeah. Well, if you told them, yeah, I just sat on this mountaintop for a week playing ukulele and meditating and I ate a bunch of marmot, they'd probably <laughs> wouldn't believe you. <laughs> no, they, they don't. They don't. They don't. And uh, and that's OK. I don't I don't blame them. It's it's pretty crazy. And I feel very, very lucky to be able to to, you know, be pushing the limits in a sport like yeah. this. So. And that's what it is, man. I mean, I mean, someone sitting at a gas station all day checking people in and out for gas and candy bars for someone to come in and say they're flying. 1200 kilometers across uh, one of the most rugged mountain ranges in in the continent that is they can't process that i i I mean i've done bike trips that were really long and i tell people where i started where i'm going yeah and they just brush it off like i told them you know hi how you doing i can't imagine with a sport that's (laughs) even more kind of out of the norm than that with what you're doing you know what i mean like it's there's no way for them to be able to process that. Just like I wouldn't be able to process someone, I don't know, doing something that's so out of my world. I, I wouldn't even know where to start with a yeah. conversation. 
Yeah, like set like an astronaut, like just like exactly. you know, was like, yeah, I just came back from Mars. Um, I'm feeling a bit tired. You know, like how do you, where do you start? So yeah, I get it. And uh, but yeah, that's 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 Vol Bivouac paragliding, Mason. My goodness, man. So so you know, you 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 make it to Prince George and. I mean, was there anyone waiting for you? Was it really, I don't know, anticlimactic or how, how was it for you? Um, I feel like it was a pretty solid Hollywood ending. Um, I uh, ended up making it a little bit past uh, the town of McBride. And uh, at that point, um, it, it gets really committed because you have this really wide Rocky Mountain Trench and the highways on the west side of the of the valley, but you would have to fly the east side. And if you landed on the east side, you'd be, you know, landing in a cut block and having several days just to get to the highway. And then another about about four days to get to Prince George with nowhere else to be able to relaunch just because of the configuration of the landscape. The mountains start to get a little bit smaller as you moved west towards Prince George. And there's literally no like McBride is your last opportunity to get up into the mountains um, without, you know, complete bushwhacking for days on end and so it's kind of a no man's land beyond that point so i stationed in mcbride on mcbride peak for a total of about five days and i waited for the smoke to clear and it never cleared and i could see in the forecast that it was gonna it was gonna stick around for another couple weeks and on top of that we were dealing with storms so given that it was getting towards the end of august it was probably about august 23rd at that point i I made the very, very hard choice to complete my journey on foot. Uh, so up until this point, I had barely walked the entire way. I'd flown about a thousand kilometers. And um, at this point, I had to suck it up and realize that if I wanted to finish this thing, um, I was going to have to be on foot. So I walked the last 214 kilometers uh, from McBride to Prince George uh, over four days on the highway. And um my girlfriend was waiting for me there, um, and she got the whole group of people at the Tim Hortons there in Prince George to to applaud as I entered. So it, it actually did feel pretty. It did it did feel pretty empowering. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was the reality. Is that uh, I was not able to to fly past McBride's the last two hundred k or so. I had to to do on foot, which was, I think a really great way to, to end it because, you know, I could have probably flown that in a day on a good day. Um, but I really had to, you know, put my head down and I think I was walking about whatever, 15 hours a day, something like that. And just meditate on how grateful I was to have been able to accomplish what I did accomplish. And, to reflect on the uniqueness of that because it can get it's so easy to just get sort of start taking things for granted you know like yeah i'm this guy i fly around you know um i've got support from these businesses to just live my dream and um just you know drop out of the sky wherever i want and launch back into the sky wherever i want and you know it's probably the greatest thing that even i take for granted inside of that i work with her on a daily basis is i take mother nature for granted you know, because she's always there. She's always dependable and um, is always ready to give me what I need. And then in a circumstance like that where she needs to burn for a month, you know, I don't know what to do. And it helps me put things into focus and to remember that she's the boss and I'm just a little marmot myself. 
and that if she's telling me that it's not time to fly, then I need to listen and I need to not complain about that, but actually just focus on how grateful I am for those, you know, month and a half of great flying that I did have leading up until that point, you know? Right. I, you know, the, the, the ending and beginning of this trip essentially are set by you. Um, but really we are invited by mother nature to experience this. And if she is, needs to do something else, then that's, that's, there's nothing we can do about it. And, uh, I think you'd agree. I don't, I don't love when people say I conquered this mountain or I conquered this feat, but I, 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 I witnessed this, I survived this because we're, we're being in, invited into these places that are, man, they're, they're, they're amazing. They're the only planet we know that, that have features like this. And it's just unbelievable to get to witness it. And, and totally. I, I, I totally agree with you. Incredibly, incredibly grateful. Even if a trip doesn't turn out how I hoped, but that I was at least out there even for a moment to, to experience any of this is just consider myself lucky. Totally dude. Yeah. It's, it's a treat, you know, and, um, and, uh, you know, the re the reality is, you know, I could have gotten pounded into the, into the ground on day one, you know, or not even gotten off the hill, you know, could have twisted an ankle, could have anything, anything could have happened, but none of that stuff did happen. And so, it's just a really good practice for me just to express my gratitude in those moments of strife of, you know, blisters popping, you know, like <laughs> pounding rain, getting soaked, yeah. you know, just like head, head to toe with like semi trucks blasting past me, you know, causing these massive wakes and, uh, and just being like, yep, yeah, no, I'm still alive. I'm still here. I can still walk. I have some peanut butter in my bag. I'm okay. <laughs> Yeah. I have some peanut butter and a ukulele. There's nothing yeah. I can't do. <laughs> Man, that's so funny. Now, so speaking of which, would, would you mind? Because we don't talk to tons of paragliders. What? What? Because because I'll be honest. In the pictures, you look kind of like a backpacker. You know, it looks a little different. But if someone didn't know, they would just assume you're backpacking. What? What yeah. kind of things are you carrying that might be unique to to your sport? Obviously, the wing. But right. like, what else? <laughs> Um, I guess not a whole lot, um, other than the wing, uh, the, the important thing to consider is that when you're looking at my backpack, which may look big to some, it may look small to others. It's, a, it's a little bit wonky and it doesn't look like it has a lot of support. Um, the thing that's in it is the paraglider that takes up probably 80% of the space in that bag. I believe um, and I think it's probably like only like a 60 liter kind of a bag, let's say. So it's not huge and it's kind of puffy. And so inside of that, I've also got a harness, which doesn't take up a ton of room. Um, and a, a few uh, instruments that I use for aviation, but you could use them for other things like a GPS, you know, and a phone with topographical maps. Um, and uh, but that's just kind of like hiking stuff, really. I'm just doing it in the sky and I have different maps, maybe. And then you have um, basically all your basic camping stuff. And I just go for the most ultralight stuff that I can get. So I carry a uh, ultralight two-person tent. Um, it's the the Big Agnes Fly Creek Ultralight 2, uh, which I, I'm not supported by them, but I highly recommend because yeah, it's done. Colorado Company 2. Yeah, it's it's very, it's very good. Um, and I felt it was reasonable um, what they asked for it. So... Um, that's something that, uh, I would replace if, if I needed to, um, 
I got a one of those enlightened equipment, um, also a U.S. company, uh, quilts. It's a down quilt, uh, so it's super minimalistic kind of sleeping bag. Um, it goes down to sub-zero, and I think it weighs half a, half a kilogram. Uh, it's similar to the Western Mountaineering, just a fair bit less expensive. Um, I have a jet boil, uh, which I try not to use because I can't replace the fuel very easily. So uh-huh. I use... I usually just make little fires under the thing, and that that tends to work really well, uh, even even though it, it kind of creates a lot of carbon buildup that I have to clean off. Uh, I usually just make a fire and, and put the jet boil pot on that. Um, but I have the fuel canister and the, the thing for that. And then I carry a fair bit of uh, photography and film equipment um, because that's my job. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a filmmaker and I'm a professional photographer. And so I'm actually just finishing a feature-length documentary a film about this uh, project, and I've already published the the official photo documentary on my website. Um, and so I'm constantly documenting what's going on, uh, vlogs, um, you know, setting up cameras on tripods, walking past the camera, doing some action. Uh, in flight, I've got cameras on um, stabilizers. Um, I've got cameras on. Um, strings attached to the the like the outside of my paragliders they're flying along beside me like a like a co-pilot if you, if you will um which you'll see in some of the photographs and the film and so that's a big part of what i carry so i've got solar panels um i've got a little battery pack uh extra stuff i use all the goal zero stuff i, I find that their stuff's solid and uh then just some basic camera stuff some little hd cam and some gopro stuff and that stabilizer as i mentioned selfie stick you know um, and then, yeah, like first aid, you know, that kind of stuff, repair things, um, needle, thread, band-aids, duct tape, uh, super glue. And those are all super crucial, by the way, like life or death crucial. And um, with the wing or with not nah, just with it was stuff. with everything, okay. with everything. Like if I break a line, for instance, I'm a paraglider, like I got a few replacement lines um, that's just standard thin Dyneema, whatever lines but i need to i need to sew with a needle and thread i need to sew the thing closed uh, after i replace it to the right length um in order to do a, a line replacement in a pinch you know if i if i realize i'm about to go launch and i didn't realize that i broke a line somehow on my last flight that i have to replace that line immediately so things like that um or if my if my pack tears apart sometimes i'm, I'm overloading my pack and i've had it, it instance where my pack was breaking apart at one of the points where the webbing was contacting. So then I'll have to, you know, um, maybe cut a piece of my shirt as a patch and then like use the needle and thread, uh, you know, over an hour, you know, to create a patch where I've reinforced the, the bag, those kinds of things, you know, and then of course there's food and I try to make a lot of space for food. So I've got this compartment in my harness where my rule is that nothing other than food can go in there. That's so that I don't shortchange myself on how much food I can bring so that I don't carry more accessories than can fit into the rest of the harness. Even if I only have a day's worth of food, the only thing that goes into that pocket is food. That way I can fill that pocket up with food. And if I, if I go for, if I, you know, am leaving home or leaving a gas station or wherever I've last gotten my peanut butter and noodles, um, I can pack up to 12 days worth of food into that little pack. And that, uh, I think it is about 10 liters of space and it 
that will last me 12 days. And I put all the peanut butter um, into Ziploc bags so that um, they get smaller as time goes past and they're a bit more malleable in the pack. That makes sense. Yeah. Wow. That's, and that's literally all you have for food. Well, you know, I find that it's um, on top of being economical, um, it's the most, some of the most calorically dense stuff that you can get. And it's the stuff that you can get anywhere. So I could step it up a notch and go with like ghee, you know, or butter, but that that's not going to be fun. Plus you can't find ghee everywhere. And if, you know, I know one guy, he does mayonnaise, but geez, like, you know, I mean, it's one thing to have peanut what? butter, pe- peanut butter with your coffee in the morning, but imagine having a, like a spoonful of mayonnaise whenever you got hungry. Like that's just gross. So as far as like calories for weight and space, I mean, peanut butter is just a godsend, you know, to us here. I feel it's tasty. Um, it gives you a ton of energy. It's, you know, not just shitty calories and you know, the noodles, okay. The noodles aren't great, but still calorically dense for weight and, uh, the way that they fill up my belly, it really helps me get a good night's sleep. So, um, wow. yeah. Un- unreal. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking through your like photo album of this trip and yeah, it, it, it makes sense now why these pictures are so good. You do this for a living because this is the most beautiful scenery it, I've ever seen. I mean, it's unreal. It's unbelievable. And to know that you flew <laughs> over it and that you land on the ground. Yeah. That you really exist in two different worlds on these trips. Mm. Uh, the, the, the world of the birds and then the world of, of us terrestrial animals that have to walk around the ground. I can't imagine what a day flying is like to land and then have to walk, you know, somewhere. It's just such a trip. Yeah. Tripping. You just must be tripping all the time. <laughs> I, I kind of am. And like, and, and, uh, it's my like, like great honor to be able to put this kind of stuff into a film because I try to document those moments of like extreme excitement. For instance, right after I land, you know, I usually have something to say to the camera and the camera's already running cause it's recording the landing and I'll say something. And whenever I land, whatever I say, I'm like, ah, that's genius. When I look at it after, cause it's like, I can't recreate that. I can't fake that. I couldn't have written that, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I love to be able to share that kind of excitement because literally what's happening is you're flying. And then all of a sudden you think you have a plan and then your plans change and you're now looking at landing somewhere you actually don't know where you are and you're going to have to figure out how to get back up to a mountain or be able to hike to get food somewhere. And, um, you know, (laughs) it's like, it's, it's just vulnerability to its max. And I feel that vulnerability and love are one and the same thing. They're just interchangeable kind of emotions and words. And so, I would say that literally what I'm doing is I'm just flying into love and I'm landing into love. Um, and that that's why, why I'm, when I'm speaking to my video camera after I've landed, that I'm getting something that is so precious is that it's my deepest expression of love. And that's, that's really, I think what, what it is in a nutshell for me is that I get to feel that deep love, you know, as long as I'm on these kinds of uh, journeys like this. Wow, man, that is just just awesome and now I, I know you you're a filmmaker photographer and you have lots of projects uh and, and you document them really well what what else is going on and what, what's in the future for you um and is there anything that's kind of 
in correlation or parallel to this that you're doing that you'd like to, to share with the listeners? Sure. Well, you know, I, I have a kind of, would it, would it benefit you to, or, uh, your listeners to hear about like why, like I, I'm at where I'm at and like where I've come from in terms if of, you have the time. I would love yeah, to hear that. I have the time and I, you know, I, I want to be succinct. It's, there's so much to say. No, talk, man. We, we, we do long form interview. Um, we don't keep okay. things to a script. I mean, some, some episodes are 30 minutes, some are an hour and a half. It all, all depends right. on the, the guest. So here's, so here's a little background. Um, I, I grew up in the city of Toronto. I, uh, didn't go to college. I decided that I wanted to be a fashion photographer, a fashion and advertising photographer, because that was like the image of the coolest guy I could ever imagine being. Really? And, and I, I, be, I became that guy. I was shooting for, uh, you know, businesses like L'Oreal and, and Nike and, and all sorts of things. Lots of recording artists I worked with. And I did that for about six years. Um, and I got to a place where, you know, I was, I was doing it. Uh, it was getting better. I was, you know, earning more every year, saving more every year. And I started looking at like the prospects of like having to, you know, buy a house and, um, realized that like, even if I worked as hard as I was working, like in the city of Toronto, no less, that was going to be something that was going to, I was going to have to keep doing exactly what I was doing for the next like 30 years. And I remember asking a, fr a friend of mine and, and sort of saying like, dude, like I kind of feel stuck. Like I'm, I'm kind of living my dream, but at the same time, I feel like I'm kind of stuck in my dream because that just doesn't seem exciting to me to have to repeat this script every day for the next 30 years. And he basically just said to me, um, and I respect this guy very much and I respect his opinion very much, but he, he basically just said to me, that's how it is, Ben. Like that's, you know, unless you want to, you know, deviate from society, um, you pretty much have to do that. And that was so depressing for me. And uh, that's really when everything changed. And at the time I had been, um, I had I had just learned to paraglide. Um, and I had, uh, I had I had wanted to do a big project with paragliding and photography because I felt like, well, paragliding I love and photography I love. Let me put them together. I'm gonna paraglide across Canada. That was my big sort of goal that I had set for myself that was totally unrealistic at the time. But I was organizing these skateboarding events and uh, longboarding specifically in Toronto. It was still quite new at the time. And um, I got an email from these guys that wanted me to organize a fundraising event for them in Toronto as they longboarded across Canada from east to west. And um, I first said, sure, yeah, breast cancer, totally. I'll, I'll support you guys when are you coming through. We'll, we'll, we'll throw a big event. We'll raise a bunch of money. And I went to sleep that night and I was thinking about what they're going to do. And I was like, damn it, I want to do that. And I wrote them the next day and I said, like, look, you don't know me from Adam, but you need my photography. You need my web development skills. I'm you. Ha please accept me as part of your team. I'll cover all of my costs. Just I want to skateboard with you. I want to document this. You know, I want to make this a big thing. And fortunately, they said yes, uh, because I'd already given the notice on my apartment. I literally had two months to the day of their departure, which is the amount of notice you have to give for a uh, leave an apartment in Toronto. And so I'd given my notice and I didn't know these guys at all. Um, but I, I got on a plane, I gave away all of my stuff. I kept my skateboard, my guitar, my computer, my camera, 
And I got on the plane to Halifax. And the next day we started skateboarding across Canada. And it took us six months. Um, and uh, we raised a ton of money for breast cancer. It was an amazing experience. And two years later, uh, I flew a paraglider back across Canada, a, par a powered paraglider, I should specify, from Tofino, which is the westmost point of southern Canada, to St. John's, which is the eastmost point of southern Canada, Newfoundland. And it was a 10,000 kilometer world record. And um, that just sent me spiraling into a incredible life of adventure. And since then, um, I've traveled about half the year every year. So we're talking for about 15 years all over the world. And I've been making uh, documentaries about adventures that I have in Canada, as well as abroad. Um, something I'm very passionate about is helping people learn to paraglide in uh, countries where they would not other they would not be able to afford to learn to paraglide uh, just because of the economics involved. So I've um, I started by going to Malawi um, because no one had ever paraglided there before, not a local or a foreigner. Back in 2011, I taught the first guy there to fly a paraglider. And I made a story about that. And it's called The Boy Who Flies. Uh, it was very successful. It was in the Banff Mountain Film Festival and Kendall and, and all those other big ones. And uh, that did very well. And it allowed me to take a bunch of the proceeds from that film and put it back into that project. So I've started a project in Malawi called The School of Dreams, which is a place where uh, people who want to learn to fly, um, you know, despite being from what is considered to be the poorest country in the world, um, you know, with if if they're willing to put in the work, uh, that I will help them uh, obtain the 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 quality instruction and the quality uh, used equipment that they need in order to make that dream real. So that's happening. Um, it's called the School of Dreams. Uh, the School of Dreams org is the website for that particular project. People are invited to get involved, either as pilots or non-pilots. There's lots going on, which I won't get into right now, uh, in terms of the community involvement, and people can get involved as volunteers. Uh, immediately if they want to. Um, so there was this big shift that happened in my life. And, and, and essentially what I realized is that I was tired of waking up and going to sleep in the same bed every single day, that as good as my life was, the fact that I knew what it was going to look like was horribly unsatisfying for me. And now I don't live in a swank apartment in downtown Toronto. I live in a school bus in rural British Columbia on a farm. Um, but I do that because it gives me the ability to do whatever it is that my heart sings that it wants to do. And what it wants to do is it wants to have adventures. So uh, the fact that I'm talking to you right now about all of this means that I chose the right path. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So so what, you're in the town of Nelson, correct? Yeah, I live outside of Nelson. I actually live in the Slocan Valley, just just south of the the Great Slocan Lake, um, so it's about an hour outside of town. Everything takes a while because the roads are so windy out here. You right. know, you have to go. But yeah, it, as the crow flies, it's only about twenty clicks from Nelson, but by road, it's about a hundred. Why that area? Well, you know, um, when I rode my skateboard across Canada, right right before I did that, um, when I was still living in Toronto, the thing with Toronto was that I realized that. Adulting was going to be a lot of work. I was 25 at the time and I was looking at the whole house car thing, you know, trying to trying to figure out how I was going to play that out in my life. And I realized, OK, that's going to be a lot of work. But if I'm going to do that, 
I better be doing that in an area where I absolutely want to live for the rest of my life. And um, I realized that I would have rather worked, you know, some sort of intense labor job that I didn't really love that much if it meant going back to the place that I love the most in the whole world. And so that skateboarding journey, basically crawling across Canada on a skateboard, allowed me the opportunity to really sample the entire country. Um, of course, not the north, but uh, the entire southern part of the country. And, you know, we stayed in every town, every city uh, as we came across. And I found myself gravitating towards British Columbia. And once I got at the BC, I moved to Vancouver and I went on a motorcycle trip, got my first vehicle, which was a motorbike. And I went on a motorbike trip the next summer and I found the West Kootenays. Um, first, I found Nelson. And um, when I got off the bike, I was struck by how nice everyone was. It was like a small town, but everyone was really, really nice. Like you asked for directions to, you know, a coffee shop that you were recommended. And all of a sudden they're also, this person is recommending some other thing to you and they're doing it in a really friendly capacity. And I hadn't experienced that in city life. I'd always thought I had to live in a city because I was born in a city and I thought anything less than a city was just lesser than. But I realized that when there's less people around, people care about each other a bit more. And uh, I was really attracted to the vibe of Nelson at, at that time. So I moved there uh, the following year. And um, once I got out there, I, I kind of started to, to realize, well, there's even more remote areas around here where people are even nicer. And, uh, and then you can also be you know, more in tune with Mother Nature. So I live right on a river out here um, that I can drink out of. And, um, I don't get to see a lot of people, which can be tough at times, but that's the thing that I'm working on. Right. So that's, that's fine. And it allows me to put all of my time and energy into my projects and my film projects. So I live out, yeah, I live in, in the West Kootenays and I live here because I feel that not only is it beautiful, not only is it pristine, but I found here the nicest people, um, I want to say on the planet, but if not on the planet, then at least in this country. I see, I see a little town out there called New Denver. Yeah, New Denver is just north of where I live. Um, I fly from Idaho Peak a lot, which is just above New Denver there. Uh, New Denver is an old mining mining community. This whole area is like kind of Canada's version of the gold rush. You know, New Denver, Silverton, all those areas, they were basically all developed um, to be able to make people, you know, rich back in the early 1900s. And then they turned into ghost towns. And then, you know, a lot of draft dodgers moved up here. Um, during the the war down in the, I guess the Vietnam War, and that's a lot of who's up here and kind of repopulated this area. Wow. So it's got a real it's got a real hippie kind of vibe, which I hmm. I definitely resonate with. You know, grow your own food, you know, build your own house, you know, try to you know, consume a little bit less, do a little bit harder, but you know, feel more satisfied at the end of the day. I love it, man. Yeah, I'm I'm from uh, old or I live in old Denver, oh. big city, <laughs> and uh, yeah. It is, man, it's, it is not, it is not that area. <laughs> it's a big right. city, man. It's getting bigger by the day. And yeah, I, I need to find a little, little place like you found and, and get away from all this craziness. Well, you're not far. Um, I've definitely, I've driven from there back into Utah before on some pretty remote roads there that I thought were pretty special. So I think you're in a pretty amazing place, but yeah, for sure. That's a huge, huge, huge it's a huge city. Man. So in in Canada, is it, you know, here in the States, it's, uh, 
the west is kind of where where the adventure is you know the big landscapes the 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 massive mountains the wilderness the wild the adventure kind of is out west is that the same with canada i've never been able to ask somebody that absolutely yeah it it is i talk about that like when i get out of college i'm going out west i'm going to yeah everybody everybody yeah they yeah, they either a lot of people move to either Vancouver or Calgary as their starting points because you know most people live in cities, so they move to cities because that's where they feel confident that they can find work and stuff, and and that's cool. Um, and then from there, they usually, you know, not usually, but they can be like me and they can get a bit more rural because they realize, well, I don't want to commute to the mountains; I want to live in the mountains, right? You know, and uh, and then they maybe sacrifice a little bit in terms of employment um, in in order to really live in the right in the heart of the environment that they would otherwise be traveling to on the weekends. But, uh, yeah, there's something for everyone out there. Worthy sacrifice. (laughs) Well, I yeah, I don't I I don't I don't really miss the hustle so much. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's whatever there's 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 good things about both 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 sides of it it just depends on where you're at in your life and what you want what's important to you so for me just getting out in you know the morning and just being able to you know pee wherever i want and howl at the moon and not worry you know i not worry about whether i'm upsetting a, a neighbor or whatever uh for me that's the most important you know when it's a sunny day i'll get out with my banjo and i'll just be playing at top volume singing you know at the top of my lungs not worrying about whether I sound good or not, because I just feel awesome. I just, just whatever makes me feel good is what I, is what I want to be doing. That is so funny. You say that, man, I was just frustrated right before getting on with you because I, I've been drinking a lot of coffee this morning and I had to pee and I was like, I can't, I I just want to not have to aim every time I got to go and just go outside and (laughs) aim towards a bush and just go for it. I like to practice aiming, but I like to try to write like communications for my girlfriend and, you know, like, Oh, how, how romantic a heart or, you know, something like that. Yeah. You know, I try. Oh man. A true romantic (laughs) right there. Holy cow. Special girl, special, special girl. But that's, that's funny, man. Wow. So any, any big adventures on the, on the horizon for you? I'm just kind of resting on your resting right now. Yeah. I don't want, to um i i i I, it's a good it's a great question because it 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 allows me to talk about why i don't talk about the adventures on the horizon um and and that is because you know unlike um you know a lot of other athletes that i respect that you know really promote their their adventures and, and they get people to follow them with live tracking and all this kind of stuff uh my feeling is that i you know i wrestle with my ego. I don't want my ego to come up. It doesn't serve me. And if I'm in a situation where I'm, you know, um, looking at a high risk, uh, operation, like such as what we've just talked about today. Um, I, I feel a certain kind of pressure. You know, if I give my word to something, then my word in order for my word to be good, I have to act. And I want to make sure that I'm only doing things because I think that they're a good idea in that moment. Not because I said I was going to do it and that people are kind of expecting me to do it and that they might judge me as not being a man of my word if I don't. And I don't want to have to walk around creating a bunch of excuses for myself like, oh, it wasn't the right day or it wasn't the right year or this or that. So for me, it makes it guarantees to me that I'm not going to put myself in a dangerous situation 
um, that is something other than what I wanted to put myself in for my own um, reasons apart from my ego if I don't have other people watching me. So for instance, only one per other than my sponsors, only one person knew that I was doing this, or I guess to my girlfriend and the guy that was watching my tracker, my in-reach tracker, because I needed to have circumstances, like for instance, when I was flying out of Golden and I had to fly from Golden to Saskatchewan River Crossing over the Great Divide, over the Continental Divide, that's a big deal. But that's done less than once a year. It's probably only been done yeah. five times, five times in all history. And uh, I needed to make sure that that was the right day and the right time to do it. And that I was confident that I could make it over that 50K of very unforgiving wilderness. And on top of that, cross all the way across Banff because it would be illegal for me to land in Banff. And so... When I flew away from Golden, after waiting for four days of high wind to pass when I was in Golden, I got out of Golden. I'm 20 kilometers north of Golden. I'm above the Blaeberry Valley, and I'm looking at Howes Pass, and I'm looking at the Continental Divide, and I have to commit. And I got this feeling in my stomach, and I, I just turned and turned and turned there under the clouds for about half an hour, and I realized it was undeniable and I could not do it. It was not the day. There was just too many uh, variables that weren't perfect, and I felt that the risk was too high. Now, had I had people looking at what I was doing, if, if I felt that there was 1,000 people or 2,000 people from all around the world watching my tracker, excited, kind of cheering me on, no question I would have done it. No question. Because just that feeling of encouragement that I would have felt, that I would have created in my own mind, would have been enough to make me choose to do it. But the reality is it would not have been safe. It would not have been safe. And I needed to fly back to Golden and suck it up and wait three more days of shitty wind to be able to make that crossing happen. And so circumstances like that are the ones that I want to protect myself inside of. And so that's why I don't talk about it. And um, it keeps me really safe and it relieves a lot of stress too. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a wise decision with, especially with the sports. So like you said, with so many variables that aren't con easy to control, like, you know, hiking, it's, it's a good chance you're going to be able to hike every day. They, they're really what's going to go wrong is something with your body. Um, but what you're doing, oh gosh, there's lots of, uh, needs to be a lot of redundancy when it comes to safety and you don't want any false sense of encouragement or, or pressure that shouldn't be there, you know, so that that's wise. Exactly. And so I don't, if it's not the year for something, then it's not the year. And if I have to inform my sponsors, like, Hey, I'm going to do this next year or something like that, I can deal with that, but I can't deal with, you know, the, the comments and the ideas and the opinions of thousands of people now that are in, you know, interested in kind of like watching me and trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. I have to keep it top secret. Um, because otherwise it just, I get very, very uncomfortable. Um, but I am really excited about what I feel is next and what I know is next, which is that I'm releasing a film and this film, I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out basically until a few weeks ago, but I'm getting, I'm kind of closing in on the, 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 the final thing, doing some of the sound and the color now. And I am so excited about the film. It's just called The Endless Chain, which is also the name of the expedition. The Endless Chain is that 25 kilometer long ridge in Jasper National Park that no one had ever flown over top of before. Oh, yeah. 
And so I made the whole expedition around the endless chain and and um, living this dream. This this was also the dream of somebody. It was the dream of many people, but it was the dream of um, a friend of mine named Stuart. And Stuart, unfortunately, um, you know, he'd been he'd been hang gliding since the 70s, and he was out in Jasper back in the 70s, and he wanted to fly this ridge back in the 70s, but it was illegal to fly in Jasper National Park or any national park in North America for that matter, hang gliders or paragliders, ever since they were invented. But one park opened its doors up on a trial basis, and that was Jasper. And so Jasper, four years ago, allowed people to come paraglide, but still no one goes there and paraglides. And so most of it is still unflown. No one's ever flown across the whole thing, and no one had ever flown across the endless chain. So Stuart's dream was still this really palpable thing for me. And when he told me about it, I realized, like, you know what? We're going to do that, and we're going to do that as a team. And so I brought Stuart on as like my weather guru. Um, sorry, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, th I think I forgot to mention this major plot point here uh, that Stuart um, became a, a quadriplegic in 2011 uh, after a bad paragliding accident. And so uh, for me, I felt this really powerful emotion around that, like he would have otherwise been able to achieve this uh he's a very skilled pilot but um now he couldn't and um that that someone needed to and so i teamed up with him and i had him watching my inreach and sending me weather updates every day because i was outside of cell phone reception so he was working with me in collaboration in order to make this thing happen and we put this like he and i are now this incredible story uh that is very emotional and very energizing of uh, this team of people one guy behind his computer and one guy on the ground and in the sky working together to make this thing finally happen and so that's what the endless chain film is about and um and that's what i'm excited about <laughs> yeah i i'm very excited to check yeah. this thing out the wow. the the website for it will be the endlesschain.com. Um, I'm I'm gonna launch it in the next couple of weeks, but it'll be up by the time that this uh, this airs. Wonderful, man. I I remember I biked past that chain on the, I guess it's on the Icefield Parkway. It is, um, yeah. I remember riding past that that ridge, and and it was <laughs> it's something to behold. That is for sure. Yeah, totally. So, and you can even see pictures if you go to my website. You can see pictures of flying over top of it. It was wow. kind, kind of, yeah. I can't even believe that it actually happened. Like that's just, wow. uh. <laughs> so yeah. Well, man, I'm I'm extremely excited about this and about this interview, and and I appreciate you taking some time to to talk to us about it in detail. And honestly, I could I could talk to you another. <laughs> another two days <laughs> yeah well there's not a whole lot of that i know about this sport right well um yeah i mean if you if you want to talk about anything else i'll be very very happy to make time it's my passion and it's my privilege to to be here and be able to to share this kind of message with everyone and this kind of information with everyone wow uh, that's that's fantastic well i tell you what we'd, we'd love to have you on again at some point in the future and maybe talk about because you've done a few different um, 
quite a few different adventures. I mean, skateboarding across Canada, holy cow, that's just a totally different world in itself. Uh, you know, so we should, we should get you on again and talk about another one. Cool. Yeah. That's uh that, that'd be awesome. Or if you want to talk about stuff over in Africa, that's, that's Absolutely. a whole other can of worms. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's do this again. Cool. All right. Well, Benjamin, congratulations. Right. Uh, what an adventure. Super stoked for your film. Let us know if we can help in any way. Thank you so much, Mason. Yeah, I appreciate it. Keep doing what you're doing. This is fantastic. <laughs> All right, buddy. All right, man. <laughs> Talk to you later. Yes, sir. All right, see ya. Hey. Bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>